Please open your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 4. We'll read verses 1 through 6. Let us hear God's infallible word. 1 John, chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your declaration of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that you are able to help us understand this passage in its context. And Lord, that we could worship you by it and we could follow you by it and honor you. We ask you to guide us now for Jesus' sake. Amen. My message this morning is on the fact that love protects the saints from false teaching. We are in a section of the book of 1 John that overridingly is speaking of the love of God. But there's like this pastoral interlude, I would call it the third pastoral interlude we've had in this book, where it's like he draws us aside and says, now I want you to understand something, that love isn't just, it's not what the world thinks it is, of course. And even that Christians, that everything must be positive and we never deal with anything negative. Uh, here there's something very negative we must deal with. And so he is going to uh, protect us from false teaching in this passage. And so I want to look at this from four perspectives. First of all, the loving context of this protection. Secondly, uh, the actual protection from false teaching. How is he going to do that? And then the source of false teaching. And then finally, the saints triumph over false teaching. So what is the loving context of this protection? Well, we're in a book that has really five purposes. You've heard these before. Hopefully they're getting, you could say them yourself to someone. What are the purposes of the book of 1 John? But very clearly, he has written the book from chapter 1, verse 3, that we might have fellowship with the Father. And his, fo- his fellowship was with the Father and the Son. He wants us to have that same fellowship. And then in verse 4, he says, He's written these things so that your joy might be full. This is a divine joy, a joy that is God's joy, the joy that is our happiness can go up and down, trials, all sorts of things come in, but joy can carry us through. This joy of the Lord is your strength, and this is the joy in the gospel of Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, I've written these things to you that you may not sin. You may not continue in the practice of sin so that you're turning away from sin at all opportunities, at every test. 
And then he mentions in verse 26, which is, as we've mentioned, uh, this book is somewhat cyclical. And he goes around and speaks of one thing, and then he'll come back to it again. In verse 26, he says, These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. And he knew that the enemies were out there trying to pull them away from the Lord Jesus and from the gospel of the grace of God, the true grace of God. And so he wrote it for that purpose. And then finally in chapter 5, he mentions to us, he says, These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And in this context here in chapter 4, we had uh, just recently gone through um, four things that are tied to the commandments. And as you read through this book, He's always pressing us to the commandments of God. And how are you going to continue in fellowship with the Lord if you're walking in disobedience? But if you walk in fellowship with the Lord, you have fellowship with him along that way. He is encouraging you in those things that you are doing, and, he's, and you're doing those things that are pleasing in his sight. But he says uh, in verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. This is a very bold statement. It's one that if it hadn't been written in the word of God, I don't think we'd go around saying, well, the Lord's answered all my prayers and I do everything that's pleasing in his sight. Sounds very haughty. It's not haughty if you understand the gospel. That everything you pray, you receive the essential things. Yes, I, you might say I didn't get this prayer answered. But he's talking about the things that are necessary for life and godliness. Lord, I need love for you. I need faith in you. I need grace to care for my family. I need ability to provide for my family. I need my daily bread. These things he has provided. And, and we can thank him. And we do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Well, Jesus said that. He always did those things that are pleasing in his sight. And frankly, that's following in his train. We can only do things, anything pleasing in his sight because Christ is there pleading for us, accepting us in the beloved. We are accepted in him. Your prayers are only accepted in Christ and all your good works are wrought by him, in him and through him. To him be glory forever and ever. And so therefore you do those things that are pleasing in his sight and he washes you and cleanses you from all iniquity as you walk with him. And so he says then, and, and this is... And, Verse 23, and this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And we spoke of that as sort of the, the gateway commandment. If you don't believe on the Lord, you're lost. You'll never know him. And he first calls you to faith. He doesn't say, if you love me, I will save you. And then you try to work up this love in your heart for him. He says, simply trust in me. Cast yourself upon me. All your hope, all your trust, place it in me that I am the Son of God, that I have borne your sins upon the cross, that I was raised the third day, and you will be saved. That's a promise. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, and you're calling upon Him because you're trusting Him. We walk by faith. It tells us in Colossians, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. You've received Him by faith. Continue walking in faith. Don't try to produce some kind of satisfaction in the Lord outside of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Hebrews 11.6. 6. 
So we have this commandment. It's interesting, he's been speaking of the commandments, but now I have this singular commandment for you. Believe on his son, Jesus Christ. And then, and love one another. He ties these two together as if believing in him will certainly follow along with loving his brethren. And this is the context that he is speaking of. And then he says, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Then he's going to tell us to try the spirit. So he we abide in him through the spirit. And how do we know? Because the spirit is, is bearing witness with our spirit. Where does the love you have come from? It's not something you generate. We are to put on love. We're to put on that which Christ is. He is love. God is love. And so we love. Where does that come from? If you love the brethren, that came from the Lord. Love is of God. And that's the fruit of the spirit. And therefore you know God is yours because the Spirit is abiding in you and he's bringing forth these fruits of love and joy and patience and kindness and gentleness and temperance. All these things are flowing from his, his fruit. So it's in this context that he comes again and he says, beloved. Now he says this five times. He calls them beloved. And I love that word. <laughs> I hope you don't get tired of hearing it. And uh, if a husband says to his wife and calls her dear, I hope she doesn't get tired of hearing that. Whatever he would say, but beloved. And this comes from God. We are God's beloved. He loved us. We love him because he first loved us. And he's, he's speaking to these. He's protecting them in the context of his love for them. He loves them. And I've got a, I've got a great concern for you. You need to be protected from false teaching. And understand it's a loving apostle who's bringing this to you and now as pastors we say the same thing we are very concerned for this flock that you be protected from false teaching now as parents and and again we're in a context if you remember in chapter three he says behold what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of god one of the things the enemy wants to do is somehow divorce you from the lord that you're really his child and get you out in in a terrible place to be and and attack you attack you with false teachings, attacking you with every manner of temptation. And so he's dealing here particularly with false teachings that the enemy would bring to the child of God. And so it is in this context of God's love, an eternal love, watching over his children, trying to be sure that they are cared for. Now, we understand this as parents. We, we spend about 18 years warning our children about all that's out there. <laughs> and then we kind of introduce them sometime in their teenage years. There's some stuff out there that we haven't been talking about, but it's, it's very heavy. Um, and, and they aren't for little children. They are for teenagers who need to know that these things are out there, these sins are out there, these temptations are there. And then they go out in the world. And hopefully <clears throat> they take the word of God And they've been protected because they've trusted in the Lord Jesus and they realize that every day is a day of attack of the enemy. That he's going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, whether by sinful fleshly temptations or by false teachings. And frankly, the second is probably his favorite because if he can cause you to believe a damnable heresy, that's what will happen. (laughs) You believe a damnable heresy and that becomes your God and you have no savior. 
So <clears throat> we have this loving context to protect us from false teaching. Well, let's, let's consider what is the protection he's providing. And uh, it'll, it'll come away first by uh, commandment, then it'll come by a warning, and then it'll come by a particular example. Well, let's look at the commandment. He says first, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits or try the spirits. Now, this is not just putting your finger in the air and sensing, hey, is there a false spirit here? There's going to be a teaching that's going to come. And you're going to have to hear that teaching and you're going to have to try it according to the word of God. And if it doesn't match the word of God, it must be rejected. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. And this is a commandment. We can't just believe everything. I hope that when you turn on the radio and you listen to preachers, you're, you're testing this. Uh, Alistair Begg is a good one, and, but you even want to test him. And you go, there's others on there, you basically want to turn them off because there's lies being poured out there. And a television evangelist or whatever it is, anybody, it could be myself, you must prove what I am teaching. You remember it was the, um, the Bereans who listened to Paul, and they were more noble than the Thessalonians. And if you read that book, that's a, that's a wonderful church. <laughs> they were a great church. And, but the, the Bereans were even more noble than they because they heard what Paul said, and then they went back and they checked it out in the Scriptures. And they found out, yes, Paul was speaking according to the Scriptures, and so they believed Paul at that point, certainly. And so they were really doing what is said here, don't believe every spirit. It's not that you wouldn't believe Paul. But remember, Peter at one time began to stray off in Galatia. And he was eating with the Gentiles and he was having his ham sandwiches with them. And then he saw some coming from James and he falsely thought that they would judge him according to the Old Testament law. And so he knew that Jews and Gentiles weren't supposed to be eating together. So he slips over on another table in the next meal and Barnabas goes over there and why are you sitting over here, Peter? You're not with the the Gentiles before, well, you know, and, and he began to dissimulate and he pulled Barnabas away from the oneness that God had forged at the cross, that Jew and Gentile are one body in Christ. And he began, to, in a sense, by his actions, teaching something false. And Paul had to with, with stand him to the face and rebuke him and reprove him. And Peter, Peter accepted that. Peter was reproved and turned away from that and spoke of his beloved brother Paul in his book. So uh, Tom, Fred, myself, Andrew, all of this must be tested, proved, tried. And we look at the word of God. If it's in the word of God, we want you to believe it. If it's outside the word of God, cast it away. So we must not believe every spirit, but test, try the spirits, whether they are of God, and so that we have this commandment, we have a warning because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Not a few, not here and there, many. Now, you remember our dear Lord Jesus had said in Matthew 24, and he said in verse 24, he said, Let's go back to verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. They're coming with evidences. They've got all these wonders they're going to do, and they're not 
mine. They're not of me. They're, they're false prophets. And, you know, we don't have people saying all the time, well, I'm Jesus. People have done that. There's individuals who actually proclaim themselves as Messiah. And they've been received as that. But if someone brings to you a doctrine, that doctrine has some Christ in it. Some kind of Jesus is being presented to you. And Paul talks about another Jesus and another spirit and another gospel. And you've got to test that. Is this the Jesus of the word of God? You know, our Lord Jesus himself in John 10, what a statement he gives when he says this. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And of course, that's Christ. He's the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings them out, when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Well, they're hearing the voice of strangers, but that, that's, that's not our shepherd. And sheep do this. They, they could actually tell the shepherd's voice. And when he would call them, they were of his flock. Another, some, another shepherd starts calling them, that's not our shepherd. Well, this is what Jesus is using as an illustration. And these false shepherds, these false prophets come with a teaching. You've got to understand, they're not going to come in necessarily with, it, it, it says in Romans, with good words and fair speeches. They deceive the hearts of the simple. There's a brother named Plummer who was writing in the 1800s about how he'd never seen, he'd seen individuals with tremendous zeal and they were false prophets. You know, Jesus spoke about them going all about to make just one proselyte. I mean, this really intense zeal, it's not of God. They might even have signs and wonders and miracles that they might perform. And we expect that to be, in, in the last days, things happening like this, that people be drawn away by that. And whatever it is, we have to go back. What is the shepherd saying? What is the doctrine that's being proclaimed? So we have a commandment. We have a warning that this is going to come. And then we have a divine example. And this is happening in John's day. And what does he say? He says, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Now there were... Gnostic heretics in those days who began saying that, well, the world is all sin. And there's really no way that Jesus could become human flesh because that means he would become sin. So he looked like he was flesh, but he couldn't have been flesh. He just was a, just a form of, you know, had a form, but not really truly human. Well, if he's not truly human, he couldn't be tested in all points as we are, tempted as all points as, as we are yet without sin. And we know he was born of a virgin. He was flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone. And yet he, he, was a per, he was all man, but he was all God. And 
the commentators, uh, particularly Robert Candlish, talks about this, that when you talk about Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, there could be people saying, yes, he came in the flesh, but they really deny the fact that he was really coming in the flesh to bear all of our sins as our substitute, that he, in coming to this world, he was born under the law. And so all of his life he was bearing, in a sense, our sin and that he would, he would actually resist it all of his life and never sinning once. It's not like he wasn't tempted and didn't feel it. He was tempted in powerful ways. He had fasted for 40 days. And then the devil comes and says, well, if you're the son of God, turn this, these stones into bread, which he could have done. We know that he provided bread for 5,000 people later in the, in the Gospels. But he said, man shall not live by bread alone. And he says, as it is written, he went to the word of God in Deuteronomy, as it is written, you shall not, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he did that in all of his temptations. He quoted Deuteronomy. He went to the word of God, and this truly false spirit was coming, false doctrine to him, and he resisted. And all of his life, he was bearing, and he was, he was walking purely and holily so that he might be that sacrifice. And he would go, and he came in the flesh to die on a cross. And so if he hadn't come in the flesh, this person dying on a cross, he wasn't, he wasn't us. <laughs> he wasn't really dying for us, maybe as an example or something like that. But truly bearing our sin and our sorrows, he had to be he had to be human flesh as we have. And so please understand that this is, if you're denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, you're denying much more than just that he was human. You're denying all of his work, all of his salvation that he wrought for us. And so we have this example here, and it's, it's not like this is the only example in Scripture of false teaching. You remember Galatianism, the churches of Galatia, they had received the gospel. I mean, the pure and holy gospel of Jesus Christ. And they, they've been so converted and so wondrously converted that they, they plucked out their eyes for Paul. It appears he had an eye problem, serious eye problem. And they could tell this. It's like they loved him so much and they were converted by the gospel that they'd heard, the free gospel of the grace of God, that Jesus Christ alone is your Savior and you are justified through faith in him. You're saved. And false teachers began coming in. They might have said, well, Paul, Paul taught you a, a good gospel, but he forgot to tell you this. You needed to be circumcised to be saved. You needed to remember these Old Testament days and months and times and years and certain Old Testament laws that were good at that time but are not to be brought into the New Testament church and not into the gospel, certainly. And so they brought them in, and the Galatians began to imbibe this. And he actually writes them a very powerful statement. He says, I stand in doubt of you because you've grasped onto a gospel. He says, if I bring any other gospel to you than I've brought to you, let me be accursed. If I become a false teacher, let me go to hell. You see what he's saying? He's, he's upholding the gospel. And you read that book of Galatians and we pray it, it actually overturned all of this. And it's, it's something that, in, in the book of Colossians, they had to deal with these things. And so it's, it's, there are these false teachings in the scripture. If you look through the history of the church, you could almost say it's the history of how the church has been attacked by false teachings. 
and we think of uh, Arianism that came in the uh, uh, fourth century where this Arius came on the scene and he, and he was considered a very godly man. And it was later in his life that he began teaching that Jesus was a created being. Really? I thought he created all things. <laughs> How do you create all things and you're then a created being? Well, he began teaching that and it didn't catch on a little bit. It catched on tremendously so that when the, the uh, Council of Nicaea occurred in 325, the majority of, of presbyters there, of, uh, of pastors that were there, overseers that were there, were of the Arian persuasion. Some hardcore, like Arius, some of them, hmm, we're thinking about this, it sounds like it's good, because they took certain verses of Scripture. It speaks about Jesus Christ being the firstborn in Colossians. Hmm, firstborn. It's not talking about a time in life where he was generated. He's the eternal, eternally generated Son of God, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. It's talking about him being in first place in all of God's order. Just like the firstborn son was the one who was going to receive the inheritance. Christ is the firstborn. He's the number one. He is the one chosen, begotten, only begotten son, eternal. Eternally begotten. So anyway, here's this false teaching. And it, it is overturned. Athanasius and others there were able to speak. Constantine himself came out against it. Now that kind of puts a little weight on the scales, right? <laughs> the emperor himself says, uh, no, this is the, the true teaching, is that Christ is both God and he is man. He's not a created being. And by the time the end of the council, the ones who were on the middle ground were fully persuaded. The ones who were hardcore were, in a sense, banished. And it, Athanasius himself, five times, was exiled from Alexandria where he was was a pastor because of this truth. He had to stick with it. He stayed the course. It was fought all through his lifetime. And uh, uh, he tells a story. I, I'm not going to read it out. I have it here printed. But in Philip Schaff's History of the Christian Church, which you know is, is a wonderful history, and uh, those of you, it'd be wonderful to go through it. But he, he has a, a quotation of the letter that Athanasius wrote giving the explanation of Arius's death, how he died. And it, it turned out that, that uh, some individuals were wanting Arius to be allowed back into communion. They say that he had, he had recanted. He turned away and turned back to the, the faith. He actually went before Constantine, and Constantine said, are you now believing to orthodoxy? And he said, I am. But um, uh, th this particular pastor uh, where he, they were going to bring him in and, and, and he would have communion with him. He was so upset about this, he went and prayed. And, and one of the things that Constantine had said, and this is in the letter, that if you're not telling the truth, may God judge you. Okay, this is on a Saturday. And so this, this pastor, he goes in and he knows that Arius really hasn't repented. He's just given the words to, to, to Constantine. And he begs the Lord, Lord, whatever you do, please do not let this man come into communion service with us. What happened to him later that day, he, just being very careful here, his, his, whole, his whole insides gushed out. <laughs> he died as we've seen in scripture. It, just was, it was a terrible, terrible death. And they buried him and this pastor was 
you know, not rejoicing in his death, but rejoicing that the Lord did not bring him into communion of the church with him being a heretic as he was. And so that's just one situation here. You go on to Pelagianism. And Pelagius was a man who was teaching that man is basically good and that he has a will so free that anyone can believe in Christ at any time on, it's just up, up to them. And of course, Augusta knew that's not true. I mean, man has a free will, but he's chained to this thing called sin. And he can sin in this way and sin in this way, but he, he can't do righteousness. He cannot believe without grace. And that's what Pelagius was saying. You really don't need grace. You have the ability to believe in and of yourself. It was a rank heresy. And even through the history of the church, we've had semi-Pelagianism where man, yeah, man is he's sinful and he's lost, but he has this ability where he can, he can believe apart. In a sense, you need the grace of God, but God brings you to the place of, of, of choice and he leaves you there and wonders, you know, are you going to go this way or this way? It's all up to you. Brethren, if it were up to us, we would not believe. We need a God who is going to come and quicken us and make us alive and we can believe on the Lord Jesus by his divine rebirth. It's, 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 it's a miracle that any of us believe. It's a gift of God. It tells us in, in the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 1, verse 29, it's not only been given to you believe on, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. In other words, I'm going to tell you something you really know. God gave you the gift of faith, but he's going to give you something else, the gift of suffering. And so it's this gift that God has given us. And we know that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. All of your faith, all of your salvation is a pure gift. Someone say, well, you have to accept it. You can't even accept it without grace. It's all of grace. And we must accept it, but it is of grace. And so... We just go on through the years. I mean, Arminius taught five things falsely. Number one, that man, you know, he's he's on the shoulders of Pelagius. Man is basically good, has this totally unfettered free will. God did not choose people before the foundation of the world and give them to Christ. There's no such thing as divine election. There's no such thing as a particular atonement, a definite atonement. Christ's death was the same for everyone, Judas as well as everybody else, uh, overlooking the fact that Jesus said the, the, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, not the goats. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, particularly, to redeem her. And so he taught the general salvation, general atonement. He taught that the grace of God can be resisted, that if God wants to save someone, a person can withhold God's grace and they can turn back the grace of God when God intended to save them. You understand how, what kind of a God that is? That's the weakest God in the face of the earth. He really wants to save, just can't do it because man's will is just too tough, too strong. God's a gentleman. God bashes doors down, I'm afraid, in salvation, if you understand what I'm saying. You know, people misuse the verse in, in, in Revelation. Stand, I, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears his voice and opens the door, I'll come to him. It's talking to a church. It's not talking to a dead sinner who's got the doorknob and got the key on his side. And he's got to unlock it. It's not salvation. 
he's dead. The Lord bashes the door in, gives him artificial, <laughs> he gives him a heart transplant right on the scene. So, and then finally, number five, error of Arminius. You can lose your salvation. What kind of a gospel is that? When Jesus over and over again in the gospel of John says, you have everlasting life now, present tense. That's it. Now, can there be false believers? Yes. We know in the book of Acts, there was a man who was baptized and then he wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. Paul, Peter said, you're in the bonds of iniquity. You weren't born again. If you were born again, you wouldn't think you could ever buy the Holy Spirit. And others, you know, that and through the years, and, and it happens in churches. There are people who are baptized and they fall away. It's not because they lost their salvation. It's because they never obtained it to begin with. So these five errors came up, and then there's the Synod of Dort, where these things have to be answered. And five truths were laid out. We call them the doctrines of grace. Legalism, Arminianism, the new perspective on Paul, and wokeism. I mean, just all sorts of things have come at the church through the centuries. And you can go through and see how God has raised up Martin Luther. You know, you can be saved by buying indulgences. Really, a piece of paper is going to save you that you paid money for. And 95 Theses are tacked up, which destroyed that particular doctrine. And then he begins teaching after his own conversion that the just shall live by faith. And the, Re and the Reformation began to move through, through Europe. And now it's here with us. We're a Reformed Baptist church. Thank the Lord for his raising up these who will withstand these false teachings. The new perspective on Paul. If you've not heard of N.T. Wright, the new perspective on Paul was saying that, that you know, we really don't understand what Paul was saying. He really didn't mean to say, well, he did, he did say that when you, when you believe you're justified, in Romans 5, you can't deny that, that having peace, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. But he began to teach that this justification is really conferred at the end of your life. God has to sort of look at the whole of your life and say, yeah, yeah, he was a Christian, he's justified. No. <laughs> no, the very first day that you believe you are justified, a, a brother named Guy Walters and others wrote books against this man which very clearly show that, that he, he was false, but many people followed after him. And many people to this day, I'd hoped when I studied N.T. Wright myself that he was this stodgy old a seminary professor that wrote in such a way nobody would want to understand him. He's very cogent, very clear. He's written commentaries on the New Testament books, and he reads very easily. He's got good words. He's got fair speeches and damnable heresies. This, this will damn you. If you don't believe you're justified now, you'll always be working towards that justification. Your sanctification won't be that. It'll be working towards justification. You have to get justification right. It's salvation by Jesus Christ alone, faith in him alone. And that's why that's First John was written, so that you may know now that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe. Not so that you will just be justified someday, but this is what Christians do. We continue to believe throughout our whole life. We persevere throughout all the hardness and difficulties failures and losses and sins we believe in the Lord Jesus so praise God his words going to stand 
And may the Lord save this man, N.T. Wright. I believe he's, I don't know if he's still alive. But. And then I have here wokeism. What is that? Uh, the total rewriting of God's order in life. Jesus died on the cross to make us one. Jew, Gentile, every man or person, every family in the earth, no matter what they look like, what their culture is, we are one in Christ. And now, through critical race theory, every white person is definitely born a racist in this country. You can't help it. You are a racist. In Christ, we're forgiven of all the racism we ever had, and we become one, and we're one with everyone in heaven, everyone on the earth, every Christian, every color. And so, it's a lie. And then the, the lie that one could be a homosexual and be accepted into the body of Christ and be in heaven. And the Lord stated very clearly, there'll be no homosexuals in heaven. But he says to the Corinthians, but such were some of you. Yes, you were homosexual. And now you're converted. You're a Christian. You've repented of that. And you walk in that. And then we have transvestitism. How could it be? He made the male and female a beautiful design to glorify himself. And Christians walk in that. And the reason why I mention this now is because I recently heard of a brother who said he was attending a church in Baton Rouge where this is seeped in to the pastorate. And he's having to leave that church. And uh, it's very sad. It could seep in here. Watch it. <laughs> Try the spirits. Look at the word of God. And you have to reject this. It says a heretic after the first and second admonition must be rejected. Okay, you, need, you understand what you just said is heretical. Okay, okay. He keeps saying it. <laughs> I thought we warned you. This is the second admonition. You're going to be rejected. And maybe it might even go to a third, but you cannot continue in this assembly and say those things. So we have these examples. False teaching in the scriptures and through the years. How about the source of false teaching? Notice there it says this. Verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Antichristian, Antichrist, it's the spirit of Satan working in people and seeking to overturn the true teaching of Christ. You remember we said that 1 John is cyclical. Let's go back in chapter 2. And you notice he says, verse 20, but the, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ or the anointed one or the Messiah? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who also acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And so he's spoken of the Antichrist previous in this. But now we have this anti-Christian teaching. It's already in the world and it's, it's going to continue to grow. So we're always having to test. Is this of God? Is this of the scriptures? It tells us in, in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 20, 
uh, to the light and the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, there is no light in them. And I think the ESV and the NASB says, uh, because there is no dawn. They've not seen the dawn. Everything is dark. (laughs) Their teaching is darkness. There's no light in them. And so the Lord help us to be those who test these things and prove them. Every, Every week, this must be done. What I preach today, you must test. Is this according to the word of God? And and remember, Jesus said, a stranger's voice you're not going to hear. I have been in situations where I've heard preachers change their doctrine. So wait a minute. That's not what you once were teaching. That's not what the word of God is saying now. I've had to leave. Two two different occasions it's, it's happened. And it will happen here if we ever leave the doctrine of Christ. And I hope it happens that you would, you would not be able to stay and remain in a place where heresy is the reigning king. Now we look at the book of Corinthians, many sins were going on there. And there were even some false teachings that the resurrection was you know, already passed and things like that. But Paul's correcting that. True Christians would reject that. And he never told them to, to stop being a church. He did say he, he was not surprised that there were divisions among them because he says that heresies will come in and God is testing the church. Will you stay with my word? Or are you going to go with that? And of course, Christians, by the grace of God, we will not hear the voice of strangers. We'll hear the voice of Christ in that gospel, in that we've tested it, and it is according to his word. <clears throat> so we know the source of this teaching. It's Antichrist himself. It's, it's Satan himself. And then finally, the saints triumph over false teaching. You notice it says in verse 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so we have, notice the tense here. You've overcome them. I'm speaking to people who are still continuing in the truth. He said earlier in this book, they went out from us, that it might be made manifest that they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have no doubt have continued with us. But they didn't. They went out and were sent out for whatever reason, left us. They couldn't continue in the pure doctrine of Christ to fellowship with him. Because you see, this is, We're not just fellowshipping with doctrines. This is a person that we are entering in relationship to. When you receive his gospel, you're receiving Christ. And when you're rejecting his gospel, you're rejecting Christ. And you notice here, we have triumphed for a number of reasons. First of all, you're of God. He mentions it twice in verse 4, you are of God. Verse 6, we are of God. God is our Father. Christ is our Savior. The Spirit of God is within us. We are His. That's how we can reject these things. If you're not born again, you'll hear a lie. And you remember in in 2 Thessalonians, he says that God will send them strong delusion that they will believe a lie because they receive not the love of the truth. I gave them the gospel and they wouldn't believe that. So 
I'll, I'll let lies come in and they'll believe those lies and that'll certainly show who they are and it'll be a judgment. So may the Lord have mercy on us that we hold on to him because we are of God and we are his child. He says, you are of God, little children. This is a phrase he loves to use over and over again. I mean, these are, some of them are grown men. He's already said, you, I write to you fathers because you've known him who, him who is from the beginning. But we're all children. Jesus said, you cannot come to me unless you come as a little child. And so our bodies are getting older and hopefully we're getting more wise and, and so forth. But we're children. And, and coming before him as a little child, believing in him, trusting in him. And so we have overcome because we are trusting in him. We are his child. And so why have the saints triumphed in such a way? Well, he says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It is God who really is preserving us. Yes, we must test, we must try. But in the end, it's because God gave us the wisdom and grace to do that, to lay hold of him, to lay hold of his doctrine and say, Lord, no matter what, whatever happens, I'm going to stay with you. You may have read Fox's Book of Martyrs. I'm still trying to get through it for the first time. I cannot. It's so crushing, the things I read. And I, by one day, my goal, uh, one of my goals is, if the Lord tarries his coming, is to get to the last page. But there are some tremendous things the saints had to go through. We sit here in the, in the comfort of air conditioning. You know, I'm trying it. But when these things come and test you, and test your children, your family, and maybe test us in the sense that we will die for these truths. I mean, things are falling like a rock in this country. Certain things are changing so fast. How far and how fast can they go to where it will be illegal? And I'm just going to say this. This book has things in it that the devil hates. And this is a hate speech in some people's. This is love speech to us. But to tell someone you're going to hell because you have imbibed these doctrines and you believe these things, that could be damn well, it could, it could bring us to death. We would actually have to die for that. And I've always, I mean, I want to live to be a, an elderly man if the Lord will allow, but, or to die as a martyr. If anybody's dying as a martyr in this country, I want to be in that crowd. I don't want to deny the Lord and his truth. And you read that book in Fox's Book of Martyrs, they had to cleave to truth and it's because they held on to truth. And there are certain individuals that the pain was so great that the, the, the things that were, they were being inflicted with were so great they, were, they recanted. And they said, oh, I give up, I give up. I, Jesus is not God or something like that. But then they would mourn all through the night and the next morning when they'd come and say, I've recanted my recantation. And then they were put to death or then they were t- tried more. And so it's not like we're so strong. It's the Lord himself among us, keeping us, protecting us with these these commands and, the, and, and this assurance that he is our God. He's with us. He is going to keep us and protect us. And we will endure to the end. You know, some people look at that verse, he who endures to the end will be saved. Well, you've got to do that. <laughs> there's, there's you. It's, it's up to you. No, he is our preserver. Remember it says in Philippians chapter 1-6, he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You're going to get to meet the one who died for you. Who, who has scars in his hands, who will be known as the Lamb of God forever, and you will always worship him as the one who bore your sins forever. You will never forget that. 
You'll always know of grace in heaven. And as, as our brother Andrew taught us, this kindness that he will always show in even greater measures in heaven. How could it be greater than it is now? He said it is. And we're just tasting it now. We'll have it in full measure then. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. And I, I will address those who have not yet come to Christ. There was a time when I hadn't come to Christ yet. And the Lord saves sinners. He's not going to save you because you have somehow gotten better. I think of individuals I've invited to come to this church. I think they don't come because they're in sin. He saves sinners. That's the only kind he saves. He saves you exactly as you are, as vile as you are, as hard-hearted as you are, and you fall upon Christ and say, Lord, if you don't save me, I won't be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless you. We thank you for your kindness and your love to us. Watching over us, Lord. Being careful with us. Preserving us by Jesus Christ through your blessed Spirit. Heavenly Father, we were weak, but in you, Lord, we're strong. Lord, we have many sins that we ask you to forgive. And Lord, you're merciful and gracious to wash us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we have many tests and trials, sorrows, Lord, that we can't seem to get rid of, nor want to get rid of. Lord, we give them to you. And ask you, Father, for grace to bear up into every trial. Lord, you know the difficulties we face and how we failed in those difficulties. Have mercy upon us, Lord, to continue trusting you and relying upon you, glorying in you. We thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his righteousness marked to our account. We thank you for an eternal hope that is not going to change and that every promise you will fulfill most certainly and are fulfilling now. Father, we do continue to pray for our dear brother Tom. Lord, that you'd raise him up. We know that his heart is here with us. Lord, we pray that you'd bless him with your word where he is. We pray for others in our church that are infirm. We couldn't be here today. Lord, you'd strengthen them and encourage them. Father, we just commit our assembly to you, Lord. We ask you to help us grow as a body in Christ. Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.